Amen. Thank you, Keith and Greg, for serving us again today and ministering to our Randolph Street family. Tim mentioned this a few moments ago, but Keith came to the funeral home the other day and ministered to uh, Gary and his family at Hazel's funeral, and they were deeply blessed by our brother's ministry as we were this morning. Well, Randolph Street family, we are tired of these empty auditoriums. Uh, and preaching to a bunch of empty chairs. We are looking forward to uh, the days where we return to some sense of normalcy around here with you actually attending here uh, on the Lord's Day. Just a quick update about some things and we hope to get some further information out to you in the coming days. Our elders continue to monitor all the recommendations of health officials and our government officials Uh, Soon, we hope to put together uh, a plan or put out a plan to you in regard to our return to public and corporate gatherings. Uh, There will be modifications. We will not be returning to just normal day one. It will look different for a time, but we do anticipate getting some information out to you, Lord willing, in the coming week or two uh, if things continue to trend in a positive direction. Again, thank you for your patience with us, your flexibility uh, to navigate these uncharted waters for Randolph Street and its rich history. You have been so kind in your words to us, in your uh, engagement on the various uh, days, whether it be Sundays or Wednesdays, and I trust that your hearts are continuing to be encouraged To echo something Tim mentioned a moment ago, a little different side of it, if you're watching this morning and you're struggling, reach out to someone, reach out to us here, reach out to some brothers and sisters, maybe from your small group, your care group, Uh, contact someone. Don't let yourself feel isolated from everyone. Um, Connect through various means, be encouraged, be strengthened by God's people who surround you. Um, So I trust you will do that as we continue through these particular days. As I mentioned a moment ago, when I was reading the text, before I read the text, we are beginning a new series this morning. We hesitated to begin this series. This is going to be a little bit longer sermon. I'm borrowing some of Tim's time from a few weeks down the road when he will be preaching. Uh, this, This is an introductory sermon for a series We are beginning this morning on the Ten Commandments. It will be a difficult series for us to navigate through these particular commandments and understand them and how they should apply to our lives. I'm praying that through this particular series, our knowledge of God, our knowledge of ourselves will grow. These commandments that we're going to look at through the next 10 or so weeks are going to reveal to us the very heart of God in a unique and powerful way. I think in some ways they will be unexpected. And I believe they will open up our own hearts, exposing areas that need to be confessed and addressed. As we walk through this particular series of the Ten Commandments, we will do so with our New Testament glasses on. And we're going to be in Exodus 20, but we're also going to linger over into the New Testament to see how the New Testament addresses these particular commands. We want to understand these commands in their fullness and how they should shape our lives. We, or at least me, we're going to struggle through some of these commands. One in particular that I'm already studying for, that's a few weeks down the road. The application of these commands will be challenging. But Randolph Street family, I do believe this will be a rewarding effort that we put in as God's word ministers to our souls through this time. If you're taking notes at home, here's your outline. Again, this is all introductory this morning. We're not getting into the first commandment. I'll be referring back to the commandments in just a moment. It would be helpful if you have your Bibles open, notepad. We're going to be jumping to the New Testament in just a few moments likewise. Here's your outline if you're taking notes. There's five major parts of the sermon. Number one, we're going to look at what the relationship between the Christian and the Ten Commandments is. That's going to be our first 
intro into this. We're going to look at the relationship between the Christian and the Ten Commandments. I'm going to talk about some false views. I'm going to give you a very brief thought about what I think is a right view about how we should relate to the Ten Commandments. Secondly, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about one word. I'm going to say a lot of words about one word to help us better understand um, our, our thinking about this particular subject. Number three, I'm going to kind of set us in the context of the Ten Commandments. Specifically, I'm going to take us back and look at the Mosaic Covenant and see where the Ten Commandments reside. Fourthly, we're going to look at the New Testament, I think four or so points, text, in the New Testament that address specifically, explicitly, the Ten Commandments. Lastly, as I do often when we begin new series, fifth point, I'm going to put five prayers in front of you that I'm praying God will do in our midst during this series. Sadly, as I went back and reviewed my preaching life, 20 plus years of preaching pastorally, though I have gone back and reviewed commandments in teaching series, I've overviewed sections in preaching series, I have never taken time to walk through each commandment and to think through what it teaches us about God and what it teaches us about ourselves. That's an indictment upon me as I begin this particular series. So let's begin. All introduction. It's going to feel more like a classroom this morning than it does like a sermon. What is the relationship between the Christian and the Ten Commandments? Now, if you do any kind of reading in contemporary theology, you will recognize that there are a variety of answers that will be given to that particular question. What is the relationship between a new covenant Christian, a Christian who resides in the context and under the new covenant? What is the relationship of that person to these 10 commandments from Exodus chapter 20 that are kind of the foundation, if you will, of the old covenant? Well, let me give you a couple of false views. Some view the Ten Commandments as regulated, regulated to an archaic covenant and isolated only for Israel and Israel alone. As a matter of fact, one very popular writer, and this quote that I'm sharing with you is making its way, has made its way around the internet in recent years or months. One very popular quote-unquote evangelical author wrote this, the Ten, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. To be clear, he writes, thou shall not obey the Ten Commandments. False view. We'll address that as we go through this. Some view the Ten Commandments that I just read as kind of a bat, if you will, to pound over others' heads who disagree with them. As a matter of fact, some Christians think that success of Christian ministry or maybe even success of the Great Commission is getting a plaque of the Ten Commandments restored to all the courthouses of the United States. Sadly, some view the Ten Commandments, even in the context of, and this goes back to Keith's call to worship a few moments ago, some view the Ten Commandments as a means of justification, even within the Christian community. They understand that we merit God's favor through obedience to these 10 words or this 10 commandments that God has placed before his people. And let me be clear as we begin this particular series. I'm going to say this repeatedly through this sermon. The law of God was never designed to save. Luther writes this. The law is divine and holy. Let the law have its glory, but yet no law, be it never so divine and holy, ought to teach me that I am justified and shall live through it. I grant, Luther writes, that it may teach me that I ought to love God and my neighbor, also to live in love and soberness and patience. But it not, ought not show me how I should be delivered from sin, the devil and death and hell, here, I must take my counsel from the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel which, teach, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me. 
that he suffered and died and delivered me from sin and death. So Luther recognizes the law is good and healthy for instruction. But the law is never designed to lead one to righteousness and holiness in a justified state before God. Here's what I'm going to argue through this particular series. And I will do so with a lot of nuancing. This is going to be a thinking series. We're going to have to really wrestle with the scriptures as we walk through these Ten Commandments. But I'm going to argue with that nuancing that these commandments should be loved. They should be counted as holy. They should be understood as the word of God. That we must see them through the lens of Christ and the new covenant. But they should be sought cherished and obeyed knowing that obedience to God our creator and our redeemer breeds deep joy in his people you're going to hear this at the end of the morning as I walk through five prayers I do believe that if we understand these truths again with the glasses of Christ upon us Looking into these truths, we will be a people in whose souls this text, these truths will breed deep, deep joy. So let's talk about a word for a moment. The word I'm talking about is the word law. And it's very important as we study this particular series that we understand when one reads the Bible... He or she must be careful because certain words are pregnant with meaning. And that meaning must be determined by context. So the word law is one of those words. And as we read the New Testament and we see the word law pop up, we have to understand that it, refers to, it can refer to various aspects of the Old Testament. So we're just trying to be good Bible students here. As we open the New Testament scriptures... And so often throughout them, whether it be the gospel accounts or Paul's writings especially, he will be using the term law. The term law in the New Testament can refer to a variety of thoughts about the Old Testament. I'm going to give you five meanings of the word law in the New Testament. There are more. Number one, the word law in the New Testament can refer to various parts of the Old Testament or even the whole of the Old Testament. One unique moment is found in John chapter 8, or excuse me, John chapter 10, verse number 34, when Jesus is referring to a psalm and he says to the Jewish leaders who were before him, is it not written in your law? And he refers to Psalm 82. He quotes, recites Psalm 82. There, the term law is referring to a psalm, not how we think about the idea of law. A second way it's used, it can be used, and this is a very familiar way, probably some of you would immediately think of. It's used of the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the books of Moses, if you will. And so a few times throughout the New Testament, you will, say, you will see the word law refer back to these writings of Moses, the first five books. Third, it can refer to specific aspects of the Mosaic Code, the Levitical Code. So the term law will refer back to not necessarily Genesis, but moving into latter portions of Exodus and especially Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. The code by which the secular and religious and moral life of Israel was governed. A fourth way this particular term is used in the New Testament is it can refer specifically to the Ten Commandments. We're going to see one of those in just a moment in Romans chapter 2. And lastly, to really throw us for a loop, the term in the New Testament law can be used to simply mean a principle. Several times in Romans chapter 7, you will see this term used, but it's not referring back to the Old Testament in any sense. It's referring to a general principle of life. So Paul will write this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. In other words, this is a principle that Paul finds true in his life. When he wants to do right, the principle is this, evil lies close at hand. 
So the difficulty of this particular study, one of the difficulties of this particular study is us just understanding terminology and how New Testament authors use particular terms referring to different aspects of the Old Testament or even simply general principles. I put that before you because my hope in this particular study is while we are preaching through the Ten Commandments, you likewise, in your maybe your personal reading, your reading through the Bible through the year, or just your own journey through your own thinking about the law, the Ten Commandments, you, you will come across this word repeatedly in the New Testament. And each time you do, you need to look in and let context determine the meaning of that word. Let's move forward. Number three, let's talk about the context of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments set in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was a temporal covenant designed by God for his people and ultimately set the stage for the one who would bring eternal redemption through the new covenant. So so the Mosaic Covenant contributes much to our understanding of the gospel. The Mosaic Covenant develops our understanding of God. It helps us understand sin. And ultimately, it moves us toward the need of a redeemer. The old covenant shapes our thinking and it forms categories, if you will, to help us understand the crucial truths that are fulfilled in Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews, as he is demonstrating the superiority of Christ and the superiority of the new covenant, his reference point is to build for us out of the old covenant a vocabulary, a library, if you will, to understand what Christ has accomplished. In this old covenant, and I didn't count, I'm trusting scholars on this, I did see some differing numbers at times. In the old covenant, there are 613 commands. It feels overwhelming until you just Google. I Googled this quickly. I didn't write it down. How many laws, how many federal laws are on the books in just our country. It's overwhelming. But the Old Covenant has 613 commands. 365, writers say, 365 of them are negative commands. 248 are positive commands. I trust that equals 613. As noted, the the covenant, the law as a whole, regulated the civil and the religious life of Israel. Under the Old Covenant, if Israel Israel obeyed the law, they would live under the blessings of God in the land. If Israel would disobey God and transgress the law of God, they would live under the curse of God. The law puts puts forth before us the, the covenant as a whole incredibly important truths as as Christians, as Gentile Christians, it is so easy for us to move into the New Testament and miss these central truths that are developed for us in the Old Testament. Again, I've mentioned a few of these, but it's in the covenant, in the law, we see God's righteousness with full clarity. It's in this covenant we see, and, and Paul's going to refer back to this in the book of Romans on multiple times. Not only do we see God's righteousness, but we see man's unrighteousness. When we peer into the law, we see a reflection of the holiness of God, and in that, our sinfulness and our guilt. The law as a whole reminds us that God demands perfect obedience to dwell in his presence, his holy presence. And to repeat, the law was never designed to save. And the New Testament's going to pick up on this with clarity. The law was never designed to save, but the law was a schoolmaster, if you will, to bring us to Christ, to repair the ground of which Christ would enter 
and minister and serve and teach and ultimately to die and rise from the dead. The law drives us to Christ, our need for him and the sufficiency of Christ. Now in that law, that whole covenant, 613 commands, sits these 10 commands. The Decalogue, as they are known. These 10 words. And it takes only a casual reader of this narrative to understand that these 10 commands carry a unique and prominent place in the whole of the Old Covenant. Let me point out three evidences of their uniqueness in the covenant. Number one, the Ten Commandments was delivered. This is talking about their uniqueness. The Ten Commandments were delivered separate from the rest of the Mosaic Covenant. They were set apart uniquely, if you will. And after they are delivered, in the text we just read, it says this, God thundered and flashes of lightning and sounds of trumpet. And the mountain were smoking, was smoking and the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off. This is how the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, was originally delivered. When you end the reading there of Exodus chapter 20 where we did, you know that you are standing on holy ground. If you want to flip over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, continuing on this very thought. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses, after rehearsing the Ten Commandments again, writes these words. Verse number 22. These words, speaking of the Ten Commandments, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness. And with a voice, he added no more. And with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, which I'll come to in just a moment. And he gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all your heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of our, the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us, that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and we will do it. These 10 words, the Decalogue, were separated from the rest of the commandments and they were given up on this holy mountain and what attended their deliverance or their revelation to Moses was God's holy presence. Second evidence of their uniqueness, the 10 commandments. And it was referenced there in Deuteronomy. The Decalogue, these 10 words, they were written on a stone, on stone tablets by the very finger of God. It's interesting, when you read through the narrative of Exodus, you find a reference back to that idea on several different occasions. I'll read one of them to you in Exodus chapter 32, verse number 16. The tablets, speaking of the two tablets of which the 10 commandments were listed on, the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. I mean, Moses here is making sure he is being clear with the people. He's being clear to us in his writings. These two tablets rise above the rest of the covenant or they provide the foundation of which the rest of the covenant will now flow out of. They are unique. God has written these commandments on these tablets. Third reason why we say the Ten Commandments are unique is they were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, 
signifying their uniqueness among all the written law. Rick Phillips would write about this particular point. The ark was the footstool of God and the special place of the glorious divine presence on earth. It is difficult to see how Moses could have given more special prominence to this particular legal code, assigning it not merely to the cultural setting of ancient Israel, but also to the very person and character of God. Among all the writings, the Ten Commandments were that which were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So let me step back for a moment. The setting of the Ten Commandments is under this law as a whole, the Mosaic Covenant, but within that covenant, these 10 commandments carry a special place or a special priority. God spoke them to Moses up on the mountain. God wrote them on two tablets of stone. And those two tablets were placed in the context of the Ark of the Covenant separate from the rest of the writings. Let's talk about the New Testament briefly before we come to the prayers. This will be a lengthier section of the sermon, the New Testament, the Ten Commandments. I want you to turn your Bibles to these particular places, if you would, because I want you to see them. They'll be helpful to us as we journey through these commandments over the next number of weeks. Turn to Romans chapter 2 to begin our discussion. I'm going to make four points about the New Testament, or take you to four texts in the New Testament that speak of the Ten Commandments. The first one is found in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read just a brief section of Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse number 12. Paul writes, All who have sinned without the law. Now, again, be good readers here. We've got to ask ourselves, what law is he referring to? Remember, I gave you five different things that law could be referring to. So we've got to ask ourselves, what, what context here? Context, what, how does it help us understand this word? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It makes a rather controversial statement in verse number 13. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And here's the key verse I'm trying to point us to for a moment. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Here, Paul clarifies something for us. The Jews have the written law. We know that. That's clear. It's understand. If you read any of the Old Testament, what we just read, the Jews have the law and it is written. It is before them this moral code, if you will. But the Gentiles, they likewise possess the law. And as Paul notes here in verse number 15, that law is written on their hearts. I think Paul simply is saying here, they have a knowledge of a law. It's in them. It's inherent within them. I would argue it's a natural outcome of being created in the image of God. All have the law written on their hearts, a knowledge of that law. So the question is, what law is the writer referring to? Well, if you let context help us, let your eyes scan down. I'm going to jump right to it. Verse number 21. He's undressing these Jewish leaders. But he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And then he's going to go right to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor high idols, do you rob temples? He takes us to the Eighth Commandment and the Seventh Commandment. And I think he defines for us what law is written on the Gentiles' hearts at creation. Namely, the Decalogue. Sinclair Ferguson writes this about Romans 2. The Decalogue was, note this word, a rewriting on tablets of stone 
of the constitution written on man's heart in creation. That's what Paul's arguing here in Romans chapter 2. No one can stand before God with excuses. We all stand before God without excuse. Why? Because the law is written on our hearts. And that law, according to Paul in Romans chapter 2, these two tablets, these ten commands, they are written on our hearts, which I think means we have a knowledge of the moral, clear will of God. That's the first thing when I point out in the New Testament. And that's important. We're going to come back to that repeatedly. Number two, take your Bibles and flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Of the Ten Commandments, none of them are repeated in some form or fashion in the New Testament. The Sabbath command being the lone exception, although the fact of the Sabbath is mentioned in a variety of places throughout the New Testament, including the book we just completed, the book of Hebrews. And we're going to have to wrestle through that. That's, that's the one I mentioned earlier that I'm already studying for. We're going to wrestle through what it means, the Sabbath, and what the Sabbath was pointing to. But none of the Ten Commandments are repeated explicitly, some form or fashion, throughout the New Testament. I'm going to point you to two of them. The first here is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 1. Look at what Paul writes. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. How do we know it's right? Notice what Paul does. Honor your father and mother. This is a commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He takes us back to the fifth commandment. This moral law of God, what I would argue is the eternal law of God. He drives us back to the fifth commandment to support this exhortation, children, Obey your parents. Paul is not scared of the Ten Commandments. Paul is not agreeing with that contemporary author, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Paul uses the Ten Commandments as this foundational revelation for this exhortation of obedience. Children, obey your parents. Why? Let's go back to the Fifth Commandment. Let's turn to another one, another same point here. Turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse number 8. Paul, the same author, writes this. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What law are we talking about, Paul? We've got at least five options. Well, here it is. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul takes the fundamental ethic of the New Testament. Love. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And as the ground of that, he drives us back to the commandments. As the foundation of the exhortation that he lays before the people in Rome, Kevin DeYoung writes on Romans 13, when the Apostle Paul wants to give a summary of what it means to be a Christian living in obedience to God, he looks to the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. The only reason I take you to those two texts, Randolph Street family, is to help you understand that the New Testament authors, they don't shy away from the Ten Commandments. They do not shy away from these two tablets delivered by God up on that mountain. They see them as central to the ethics of the New Testament. So we talked about Romans 2. Law being planted in all of us at creation, a knowledge of a law. We, we talked about how the authors in the New Testament use the law. Third point is I want to talk about Jesus for a moment. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 22. This is a very familiar text. 
It is a text we will refer back to on numerous occasions throughout this particular study. Matthew chapter 22, you know the scene here. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, verse number 34 of Matthew 22, and they gathered together, and they're going to put a test to Jesus. They think they're going to have Jesus on this one. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. He said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When Jesus is approached in order to be tested by this young lawyer on behalf of the Pharisees, the question comes to him, okay, what's the greatest commandment of all? And what scholars recognize, Jesus in his brilliance here summarizes both tablets that were written by the finger of God. And he says, here is the summary. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus brings the moral law of God, the 10 commandments of God into this beautiful summary. You shall love God and love your neighbor. Those are exactly the two commands that Adam would break in the garden when he disobeyed. He did not love his God by obeying the commands of God and he did not love his neighbor by protecting his wife Eve from the adversary. The reason I read that text to you because that forms a foundation now for the teaching, I believe, of the rest of the New Testament. Jesus takes the Ten Commands and he boils them down to two. And ultimately they boil down to one. The central ethic of the New Testament is love. Jesus states this with full clarity. Lastly, the New Testament and the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to have you turn. It's Hebrews chapter 8. But I do want you to remember this because this is important. That the writer of Hebrews, as he builds this argument about the superiority of the new covenant. As he builds this argument about the superiority of the priest of the new covenant, namely Christ. And the work that he accomplishes and the sufficiency of his work, the uniqueness of his work. It is there in Hebrews chapter 8. He takes us back to the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah. And he reminds us of this. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. It echoes a little bit of Romans chapter 2, but it's different. This is more than a knowledge of a law now that's going to be implanted in our hearts. It is obedience to the law, the benefit of the new covenant. One of the promises of the new covenant is that God now, through the work of his spirit, implants his law into our hearts and enables us to live a life that is pleasing to God and to obey his commands. Fundamental to the promises of the new covenant is that the law of God would be written on our hearts. What law? Now the very law that Jesus summarized. Love God, tablet one. Love neighbor, tablet two. All right, if you were here, I'd look around the room and probably see a lot of confused faces because we just made a circle through a lot of information, but that was all groundwork to prepare us for the weeks that are to come. We will go back and review and rehearse and think through everything I just said in a variety of ways in the next 10 weeks after this. I wanna come now to five prayers for our church family. As we walk into the study together, I'm gonna to run through these quickly, write these down, pray these for yourself as we go through the 10 commandments. Number one, I'm praying that we as a church We'll see in the commands the character of God anew. 
that we will see and appreciate what God values. That which transcends a singular earthly, earthly covenant. And in our hearts, cherish God and his will. For example, the command, do not steal. We need to ask when we walk into this study, when we see that, that prohibition, do not steal, what does that tell me about God? I need to inform here my, my theology proper, if you will. I need to understand more about God when he delivers this particular command, do not steal. Well, it tells me this about God. That I can trust him. That he will provide. That he is kind that he is compassionate toward his children. So that prohibition tells me something about my God. Seek the kingdom of God first. And all these things will be added to you. Do not steal tells me that my God is kind, compassionate. He is a benevolent God toward his people. Kevin DeYoung in his little booklet on the Ten Commandments writes this, the covenants not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. I think we miss that. We miss that by immediately thinking these are all about prohibitions. Don't do this or do that. They're telling us something about our God and I hope as we walk into these commandments, this clear revelation of God, we will see anew what God is like. And what God wants, he continues, they say something about God's honor, his worth, and his majesty. They tell us what matters to God. Number two, I am praying that we see these words as setting forth a life of joy, not begrudging obedience. I just how we see the Ten Commandments. It's just in me to see the Ten Commandments as this issue of obedience, do it, don't do it, no joy. But this is God setting forth for his people a life of joy. These are not simply negative prohibitions, but they lead us into what God values. And when we see what our creator values as his creation, that is where we find joy. Ray Ortland writes about the commandment I referred to a moment ago, do not steal. He says this, you shall not steal God's us into ways. Listen, let this set in your heart. I can't wait to dive into these. You shall not steal God's us into ways of generosity and fairness and honesty and moderation and frugality, timely payments, wholehearted efforts, faithful promises, and so forth. In this life, we can walk this path imperfectly, but visibly, not in order to gain God's approval, but because in Jesus, we have freely already received God's approval. In other words, we've been freed to walk in the commandments of God. And in these commandments, he leads us to a life of joy. It's not simply begrudging grand teeth obedience. God is teaching us the way of life that he values. In a couple of weeks, we're going to read Psalms of Wisdom in our season of the Psalms. Psalm 1. Listen to what this author says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. And then here's what he says about this person. I will often pray this text for my life. I will pray, Father, make me this person who delights in your word, who delights in your law, that I might be a man who is planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. 
for this author, meditating upon the law of God, setting our hearts up on the commands of God, does not lead to a life of grind your teeth, grit your teeth, obedience. It's a life of joy. As God, the creator, teaches his creation, his creatures, how to live. Number three, third prayer. I'm praying that we are all reminded anew that we are under the authority of God. I mean, you can't miss that part, right? I wanted to save that one because it's obvious. God has created us and God has redeemed us. And we, as his people, we live under his authority, period. God's commands over us are our authority. Culture, political organizations, my own heart, they do not determine what is right and what is wrong. They do not determine how I live or how I do not live. God, my creator, is my authority. And in his commands, he expresses that authority. And in our obedience to his commands, we express our love. John writes this, 1 John chapter 4. By this we know, the, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments... For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then John writes this, his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because we've been freed by Christ and his work, not to pursue the commandments, to earn or merit God's righteousness, but we've been freed from the penalty of the curse of the law. And now we can live to God. They are not burdensome to us. It is God leading us. We might be planted by streams of water. Be strong and healthy and bring forth fruit. The commands of God remind us. I am praying a new season for this for us. We are under the authority of God. Number four. I am praying that as confrontation comes, which these commands will do, they're going to get right in your personal space. As we unpack the significance of these commands, especially as the New Testament, the New Covenant informs us, as we unpack the significance of these commands, they're going to confront us. You, you may look at a command and say, ah, I don't struggle there. And then we get in the New Testament and Jesus unpacks its full significance and you think, maybe I do. For example, adultery, murder. Jesus has something to say about that. He's going to unfold for us the fullness of these commands. The significance for us. And as he does confrontation will come. And as Christians, we should welcome confrontation. Not between two individuals, but the Spirit of God working in our hearts through the Word of God of revealing in our lives areas of which we are erring against God. We should welcome that ministry of the Holy Spirit in us to reveal areas where we are transgressing God's holy law. And in that, be quick to repent, to confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The commands, whether Old Testament or New Testament commands, by their very nature are confrontational. Let those confrontational commands land upon prepared, soft hearts as we go through this series. Number five, lastly, I am praying that we are reminded in this series that God has saved us in order for us to live lives committed to obedience and good works. Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that one may boast, for we are his workmanship, here it is, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has redeemed us. There's a shadow, if you will, a type, if you will, in Exodus chapter 20. The commands come after God has redeemed Israel from Egypt. He has delivered them and now he commands them. He delivers these commands before them. You have been redeemed from sin, Christian, but not to linger in your own life and your own desires. You have been redeemed to obey and to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. To walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. And I'm praying that through this series, the next 10 or so weeks, we will be reminded that God has redeemed us and it is by grace and grace alone that God has redeemed us. I bring nothing but my sin to that table, but God has been gracious and merciful and he has redeemed us, but he has redeemed us for a glorious purpose that we might live in this world to the praise and honor of our God by obeying his commands. And thanks be to God, the spirit lives in us and he is at work. And he is shaping us more and more into the image of Christ, obedient followers of God. So Randolph Street, this will be quite the journey. It's taken me 20 years of preaching to get to this moment. But I'm praying through this time, God would be incredibly gracious, working in us for his good pleasure and ultimately for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, as we wrap up this extended introduction, I would ask that you would prepare our hearts and our souls for this series, that you might shape in us deep desires to be, to be obedient to you, our God, in every phase and area and every level of our lives, that we might live obediently to you, our God. Let us value the Decalogue. Let us understand its implications and its significance, especially as we dive into the New Testament and see how these writers work this out for us. Let us not only value them, but let us appreciate, seek that they would be fulfilled in our very lives. Father, if there are any listening online today who are without Christ, Oh God, protect them from hearing any merit within the law. Let them hear the exact opposite. The, the law is not given to redeem. The law is given to expose. May they and their transgressions before you, our holy God, be exposed in their own hearts and minds by your grace. And oh, Holy Spirit, would you grant them this morning faith and repentance. May they turn from their sins and turn to Christ for deliverance. Let them call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Thank you for your word, Father. Even when it's hard and difficult, let us as your people embrace it and let us do so for the glory of you, our God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.